Church, good morning. What a blessing it is to be with you all this morning. We're continuing our sermon series called Renewed. And I am so excited to get to speak to you this morning about a renewed commitment to our future as a church. We spent some time in this series talking about our leadership's renewed commitment to lead. What a blessing to have a church where our leadership can respond and say, we want to renew our commitment to lead and serve this congregation. How inspiring that was. The next sermon in this series was a renewed commitment to discipleship as a church. We're developing some pathways to discipleship. We'll be rolling those out soon. And we want you, as men and women who attend here, to commit to being involved in that. We want you to become more conformed to the image of Jesus every single day. We want to help you in that process. Uh, last week, Kellett did an awesome job of communicating that none of us are saved to sit. We are saved to serve. And this morning, I want to talk to you again about a, a renewed commitment to future. If you're joining us online, we appreciate you tuning in. And we, we ask God's blessings over you. We want you to know that we think about you and we pray about you and we're, we appreciate you. Before I get into our content this morning, I want to clarify. I'm going to be speaking to you and teaching uh, from Second Chronicles about Solomon's building of the temple. I believe God has some things he wants us to understand about being committed to our future that we can learn through the process of the building of Solomon's temple in Second Chronicles. But I thought to myself, if I start a sermon about commitment to future with texts about building and what we can learn from building, everybody in the congregation is going to think we got these elaborate building plans. We don't have elaborate building plans. So everybody breathe a sigh of relief. I do want to inform you of some of the things our leadership have been thinking about and brainstorming and discussing and most importantly praying about that we can see God kind of leading us into. Uh, the first thing, you heard me address the uh, men and women who watch our services online. Some of our services are viewed thousands of times, some tens of thousands of times. And we've got a real passion to identify places in the U.S. and across the world where there are people who are regularly watching online, and we would like to go plant some churches in those locations. And so we are praying and and talking and brainstorming about ways to make that happen. For that to happen, we've been thinking and praying a lot about how to uh, uh, best develop our audio capabilities and our video capabilities to make sure our online presence really gives people a great opportunity to hear the message of the gospel. Another area that we're really thinking a lot about and praying a lot about is uh, uh, connecting the campuses, the college campuses in northeast Louisiana to the good news of Jesus Christ. We got anybody from our campus ministry over at ULM here? I see somebody. Come, come on, make some guys. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for being with us this morning. It's a, it's a transformational time in your lives. And I'm so proud of you guys for, for being here and wanting to hear from God. And my prayer and our church's prayer over you guys, you continue in your commitment and persistence. Uh, these guys are at ULM. The last time I checked, there was still, is there still a campus over at, uh, in Ruston? Do they still have a, is it Louisiana Tech over there? It's just so small and insignificant. I can't, 
Huh? What's up? What's up? No. Some of you guys out here are tech fans. There were some big tech fans in first service. And so I felt like I had to at least tell that same joke again with you guys because it was so fun for me to get to say, regardless of whether or not people appreciate it. Listen, you guys, college is a transformational time in, in the lives of young men and young women. We absolutely want those young men and young women to feel like they're supported and they've got some direction. And we know that Jesus Christ provides the best support and the best opportunity for direction. Can I get an amen to that? We don't want to just stop at Louisiana Tech. We'd like to go to Grambling and then we'd like to go all over the state if we could do it. So we're thinking about that. We're praying about it. We're brainstorming about it. We got a great group already launched at ULM and we believe God's got some incredible things in store uh, for our campus ministry. We want our building uh, to be used to God's glory. And so we're also considering some awesome stuff. We just want you guys to be praying and asking for God's leadership and God's provision and God's um, direction in anything we would decide to do. But we really feel like we're on the threshold of some awesome stuff. And we want to do that God's way. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. But we also need you guys to be praying about that. So that's what we want, to, want you guys to commit to in your prayer cards this week. It, that we would all be committed to our future right here at WFR, particularly in those three areas. Turn with me, in you, if you would, in your Bible to Psalm 127. Before we get into Second Chronicles, I want to set up our text by giving you a little background on what's going on in Second Chronicles. Okay, The psalmist in Psalm 127, we're not exactly sure who wrote the psalm. There's two options. It's either David, father of Solomon, or it's Solomon, son of David. In Psalm 127, the Bible says this. I'll read it to you. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds a house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Regardless of the psalm, either David or Solomon... The principle behind the first sentence in Psalm 127 is where we got to start a discussion about God building things. And I think when I started to consider what a commitment to our future was really all about, I was reminded of building something. If if anything requires a commitment to the future, it's a building project. Can I get an amen, gentlemen? Some of you guys are doing honey-do list projects right now you've been working on for years. Isn't that right, ladies? So, so you decide to build something because there's a need. That's why we decide to build things. And that need leads us to a vision, and the vision leads us to a plan, and then we execute the plan and we start building. But if anything we build in life is us building it, then we're building in vain. Nothing in life is worth doing outside of God's leadership and direction. And if He's leading, and if He's directing, then anything we build will be blessed. There's also a a thought, potentially with this text, that perhaps Solomon or David are not necessarily talking about the building of the temple. Maybe they're talking about the building of of something else, the building of a family per se. Well, who better to communicate the truth that if God doesn't build a family, or God's not the leader in a family, or that God's not directing the family, that a family ends in other than David. David was a man who pursued the lustful desires of his flesh, committed sexual sin with a married woman, then killed her husband. His family ends up having internal war and fighting, 
And ultimately, this causes chaos in the entire Israelite kingdom. David understood that if we're not following God in everything we do in life, if he's not building our family or if he's not building the temple, then what we build, we build in vain. And Solomon, a son of David, would have been more than aware of the struggles that his father had or the difficulties that his father experienced. But even if he wasn't, Solomon was a guy who was married to a hundred ladies. I promise you, this guy understood what it was like to have argument and discontent in the household, okay? Not because of the ladies, but because how arrogant would you have to be as a king, right? That's what I, that's what I think about Solomon's arrogance. If God doesn't lead and direct Solomon in his relationships or in his family or in his leadership, he'd absolutely see the consequences of that lack of God's lead in his life. Human efforts and human endeavors ultimately are going to be unsuccessful outside of the leadership of God. And so with that idea in mind, no doubt that Solomon begins to construct his temple. So let's go into Second Chronicles now. I'm going to start in chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. The Bible says this, I'm about to build a temple for the name of the Lord my God, and to dedicate it to Him for burning fragrant incense before Him. For setting out the consecrated bread regularly and for making burnt offerings every morning and evening and on the Sabbaths, at the new moons and at the appointed festivals of the Lord our God. This is a lasting ordinance for Israel. The temple I am going to build will be great because our God is greater than all other gods. But who is able to build a temple for him since the heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain him? Who then am I to build a temple for him, except as a place to burn sacrifices before him? When I start thinking about the magnificence of Solomon's temple, I think to myself, well, of course, God would have chosen Solomon to build his temple. If you were to calculate Solomon's wealth at this time in his life, some scholars think he would have been, his, his worth would have been somewhere close to one trillion dollars with a T. And not only that, but history records, scripture records Solomon as being one of the wisest men in history. Possibly the very wisest outside of Jesus Christ himself. So when I read this, that Solomon sets out to build a temple for the Lord, I'm thinking to myself, this is the kind of man God chooses to do God's big project stuff. A guy who's a king, a guy who's wise, a guy who has all the financial capacity imaginable. Absolutely, this is the man God chooses to build his temple. But what we see in 2 Chronicles 2, 4 through 6 is that Solomon was especially aware of his own insufficiency to build the temple of the Lord. What does he say in, this, in these verses? He says, our God is so great, not even the heavens can contain him. And who am I? I'm just a simple man that I would be able to build a dwelling place for a God whose greatness exceeds even the vastness of the heavens. And before we get into our discussion in greater detail, you need to know the quality that God most looks for in people or places that he builds great things through is humility 
and not ability. When God looks to do something great through an individual or through a group, God's not looking for the people who are most qualified. He's not looking for the people who have all the answers. He's not looking for the people who have all the money. He's not looking for people who have all the talent. He's looking for people who are humble. My wife and I bought a home a couple of years ago. And man, when we walked in that home, I just noticed that every single thing in that home seemed perfect. Some of you have purchased a new home before and you got that vibe. Like the trim seemed just crisp white. All the walls seemed to be flawless. Every door open and shut right. The door handles, the hinges, the appliances, everything worked. It was perfect. Two years later, you walk in the home and you're looking at the trim and you're like, how could I not have seen how terrible this trim looked? And then, and then you notice every single thing that's wrong with every appliance in the whole house. Ice maker doesn't work. Check. Shelves are falling out in the refrigerator door. Check. Dishwasher makes a funny sound during this rinse cycle. Check. Uh, dryer hose doesn't for some reason stay connected to the wall and the vent and it gets super hot in the laundry room. Check. All of these kinds of things we tend to start noticing the more familiar we get with an area. And the two, the two places in life I think this is most significant when we're talking about a commitment to future is in who you see when you look in the mirror. And I say this kind of thing a lot, but I want you to really get this. You're probably drastically overestimating your insufficiency. And the second place we probably come to those same kinds of conclusions is about, conclusions about is right here at our home church. When you first show up to a new church, it's like everybody's nice, everybody shakes your hand, all the decor looks great, everything seems brand new, bathrooms are always stocked with plenty of soap, toilet paper, tissues, it smells good, it's fun, it's nice, everybody looks good, it's great. And then two years later, you're used to all the people you're around and you notice all of their inconsistencies and all of their insufficiencies and how the the structure of the building hasn't changed or the look of the building hasn't changed. And pretty soon you're like, man, we can't do anything with this group of people. Man, we can't do anything with this building. And I want to remind you of the kinds of buildings and the kinds of people that God works through. It's your insufficiencies that best qualify you to do something great for God. Can I get an amen? If you don't believe me, we can can look at Scripture to figure that out. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, the man God chose to lead his people out of a 400-year captivity in Egypt. Moses says to God in Exodus chapter 4 verse 10, "Pardon, uh, uh, pardon, Pardon your servant, Lord. Excuse me, Lord. I don't know if you know this, but I've never really been that eloquent. Uh, I haven't been eloquent in the past. And I also haven't been eloquent since you've spoken to me. That hasn't really changed, God. I'm also slow of speech and tongue. And God's thinking to himself, Moses, that's exactly why you're qualified. Because you can see your insufficiency. Let's flip to the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, educated at the best academic institutions of his day, connected to all the right people, he would describe himself in terms of his obedience to the law as faultless. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul, talking to a young man in the ministry, says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am. Am chief. 
When God's looking for a man to carry the good news of Jesus Christ into a totally new group of people, he's not looking for the man most qualified or with the best political connections or with perfection according to the law or all the financial ability in the world or anything else that you can imagine. He wants a guy who when he looks at himself in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ and the magnificence of the cross can say, Lord God under heaven, I'm the worst of sinners. How could you have chosen me? It was those insufficiencies and Paul's awareness of that that best qualified him to be God's man. God's not looking at WFR to be a perfect place. He wants us to see our imperfections. He wants those imperfections to drive us to greater dependence on him And the more dependent we are on Him, church, the greater things He can use us to accomplish in this world. God's not looking for people or places with ability. He's looking for people and places with humility. And that's what God found in Solomon, in Moses, and in Paul. Jesus talked about this idea a lot in the Scriptures. He says in Luke... Chapter 14 and verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. James, the brother of our Lord Jesus says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. In first Peter, chapter five and verse six, Peter says, humble humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. And I love this phrase that Peter says, because he really lived this out. He had been humbled a number of times before he really got it. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, so that in due time, after I've failed and tried and failed again and been humbled again and messed up again and had another mistake, but then in due time, he may exalt you. We've got to lose our quest for perfection and continue our quest for total dependence. That's the place Solomon finds himself in in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. If he's going to do something great for God, he understands his own insufficiency, and that's what qualifies him for greatness. And that's how God's going to use us as we become more dependent on him. So what does building take? If we're going to be committed to our future and for God to do something big in our church, with our people, through our lives, what does building take? The first thing building takes is time. So I'm going to give you four points in the scriptures that relate to Solomon's building of the temple that that I believe absolutely are the means through which God's going to do something incredible through us. In 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 38, the Bible says, In the eleventh year... In the month of Bull, in the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He, being Solomon, had spent seven years building it. Friends, when our God builds something, He takes His time. When our God builds something, He takes His time. As God was preparing His people for freedom in the land of promise, He built a faithful people through 400 years of captivity in Egypt. 400 years. His preparation of that same people to to be obedient when they crossed the Jordan River into the land of promise lasted 40 years. When Noah built the ark, it took upwards of about 100 years. 
And I could go on and on and on in the scriptures. But our God seems to absolutely abide by the truth. If something is worth doing, it's worth taking your time and doing it right. I have a building project that I worked on in my house that that did take me a long time. I want to tell you this story. Uh, My wife wanted a table for our dining room. And so I'm like, babe, just go and just buy whatever you want. You know, I'm thinking like a really nice dining room table, five, six hundred bucks, chairs included. <clears throat> so I'm like, look, you just go. Money is no object. Just buy whatever you want. She shows me one table with more zeros on it than I cared to finish looking at. And I was like, hold the phone, man. So I decided I was going to build us a dining room table. So I built a table. And it took me a long time to build this table. It probably took me close to a year. And there were some times in the building of the table that it really looked like it was never going to come together. I'd have to be working on a piece that you weren't even ever going to see when you sat down to eat at the table. And each piece that connected to the table had to be built in such a way that it it could support uh, having food placed on it, different things placed on it, people sitting around on it, kids running across it, jumping off of it, and everything else that you can imagine that could possibly happen on a living room table. But I do want to tell you this. A couple of weeks ago, somebody came over to the house, and they sat at this table. And they felt the table, and they looked at it, and they were like, Kirsten and Trent, where did you get such a nice dining room table? And about that time, Kirsten had walked into the dining room, and I, I physically heard her eyes roll as she heard this guy say this. It was such an exaggerated roll of the eyes that I actually could hear it. And when she did that, I felt compelled to ask this gentleman who was sitting at my table, Man, thank you for saying that. What else do you notice about the table that you like? <clears throat> What's, what's great about that is I'm not a talented uh, carpenter, and some of the people that know me can say amen about that. But anybody with enough time can do just about anything. And so by a steady, consistent, disciplined process, we got the table finished. Churches work often the same way. It's not useful to change things dramatically in churches in the same way that it's not useful to change things dramatically in life on a dime. Because quick changes are always temporary changes. You've got to really work consistently and deliberately at making changes lasting if they're going to, in fact, last. Solomon takes seven years to build his temple Because he understands that everything worth doing is worth doing right. And when God does something, he takes his time. But Solomon couldn't have done it in seven years without a lot of teamwork. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we get a sense of the workforce required to help Solomon build this temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 1 and 2... The Bible says Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. He conscripted 70,000 men as carriers 
and 80,000 as stonecutters in the hills and 3,600 as foremen over them. We didn't have time to really get into this idea, but if you'd really study deeply the way Solomon built the temple, what you'd find is that no hammers were used in its construction. Every piece of material that ultimately went into the building of the temple was fabricated off-site and then carried to the temple and put perfectly in place so that no tool was needed. The Israelites really wanted to make sure that what they were constructing didn't feel at all like the construction of, a, of an idol. And so they felt like if they, if they were careful and meticulous and only constructed it out of their hands, that they would avoid that sin of idolatry. Well, because that's what they intended to do, this meant that they had to have a lot of teamwork. Where the temple was built was a distance away from the location where the supplies existed. So they had to have people running back and forth, telling them measurements, locations, designs, specifics. And they didn't have walkie-talkies. They didn't have iPads. And they probably only had the most rudimentary note-keeping process you can imagine. Most of it would have had to have been completed by memory through word of mouth. So you'd have one person taking some measurements with a crude piece of equipment. That same person would walk to the stone cutters in a different area. That person would meticulously cut a piece of stone to fit that exact location in the temple. And then you'd have other individuals who carried that stone and placed it right in the spot it was designed to fit. You talk about a time-consuming, meticulous, tedious effort. Building the temple was certainly that. The other really interesting part about this context is where these people, these workers came from who helped the construction of the temple take place. I don't have this on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, all you need to do is scan to the last part of Second Chronicles chapter 2 and you get the location of these individuals where they came from. In Second Chronicles chapter 2 verse 17 through 18, let me read this to you. The Bible says, Solomon took a census of all the foreigners residing in Israel. After the census his father David had taken, and they were found to be 153,600 people. He assigned 70,000 of them to be carriers, those transporting the materials to the temple, and 80,000 to be stonecutters in the hills, those actually chiseling out the stones to be laid in the temple, with 3,600 foremen over them to keep the people working. Here's what's profound about the people God used to build his temple. They weren't Israelites. And the nation of Israel would have been highly nationalistic. They would have valued people based on their race, their skin color, their religion, and their economic class. They wouldn't have likely wanted anyone to have a participation in the building of the temple that wasn't an Israelite. But when God builds things, he builds things through teamwork. And if we're going to build what God intends for us to build at WFR, in our lives, personally, in our homes, in our nation, then we've got to be willing to see past skin color and see past social class into the hearts of men and women. And we've got to be willing to be unified with those, even those who are difficult for us to be unified with. Not only that, but this idea of teamwork doesn't involve what I think the typical idea of teamwork is. I'm the oldest of three boys. So my dad would say something to me like, Trent, you got to go out and you got to mow the lawn today. 
I'd just be thinking, oh man. But then when he would say to my younger two brothers, Wes and Grant, you guys need to go out there and you need to help your brother. I'd be thinking, yes, not as much for me to do. And that's usually our approach to teamwork, which isn't a bad thing, but it is bad if that's our attitude. I'm glad that I share this responsibility with others so that I don't have to do everything myself. In God's idea of teamwork, we have to approach this idea of unity through the lens of me doing everything I can for the mission and expecting the rest of my team to come in and fill up my shortcomings and my deficits. That's, that's why God uses these people. He wants to communicate to the nation of Israel that his plan is bigger than their nation. And his plan requires a unity bigger than their imagination. And when we understand that that's the way our God works, then all bets are off in terms of what we can accomplish through His Spirit in unity with His people. But building doesn't just take teamwork. Building also takes treasure. Speaking of treasure, if anyone wants to invest in a new headset for me, that'd be just fine. I'm not sure what happened there, guys. Um, building also takes treasure. Let's go to First uh, Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 14. Now, when I was talking about Psalm 127, and I told you that we weren't 100% sure who wrote Psalm 127, my best guess is Solomon. But even if it was David, I think we can make a case that David wrote Psalm 127 with the idea of building the temple in mind. Because where there is vision, there also has to be provision. Where there's vision, there's got to be provision. David has had a vision for the temple that it was going to be exceptional, that it was going to be great, that it was going to glorify God, and that it was going to be a place where God could interface with man and God could be worshipped. And so in 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 14, David communicates to Solomon a provision he leaves so that he can see the vision for the temple come to pass. This is what he says. I've taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighed and wood and stone and you may add to them. And he's addressing Solomon there. If you do a quick bit of research here, what you'd find is that 100,000 talents of gold equals 3,750 tons of gold. Now, the price of gold today is about $1,200 per ounce. So if you took 1,200 times the number of ounces in a pound, times the number of pounds in a ton, times the number of tons David left to Solomon, you'd get hundreds of of billions of dollars. That doesn't include a million talents of silver, which would also be an, a really significant amount. And what we know is that in David's measurements, he had the capacity to measure up to at least a million talents, because that's what he says in terms of the quantity of silver he's got, a million talents. 
And so he says, the quantities of bronze and iron that I've left are too great to be weighed, meaning I can't even weigh it because it's over a million. I don't even want to try it. It's going to be too great a number to even try and calculate. Some, some scholars and theologians think the fortune David left to Solomon to build the temple would have been close to like $500 billion, half of a trillion. I know you're like me, and sometimes you go and look at like the value of a dollar in ancient times, like 1960, you know, 1965. And it's like, man, what you could get with a dollar. Haven't y'all, especially you college kids, like you could get a pack of gum for 10 cents. You've heard that, right? But that was in ancient times. That was like 1973. You know what I'm saying? The value of a dollar has depreciated since that time. So you can imagine what a fortune like this over the length of time that's passed between the day that this was written and today would be worth in today's standards. It would just be hard to even imagine. Why does David leave such a great gift to Solomon to build the temple of God? Because David knows that all great building requires sacrifice. It wouldn't have been significant for David to give $100,000. Because he had so much wealth. But to give maybe $500 billion, that hurt. So when we're as a church committing to our future, part of this is what we're going to be asking for. We're asking you to contribute your treasure to the vision of WFR. And I don't know what it is you treasure. Some things that came to my mind when I was considering this. We treasure watching football. I like to watch baseball. We like to watch basketball. Our cable bill, let's say, is 100 bucks a month. If we decided that when God crystallized the vision for our church and we really needed to surrender our treasure, perhaps we would cancel our cable and give that sum of money to the church over the course of a year, 1200 bucks to get behind the mission and the vision. But maybe some people say, you know what, I really just can't find any room in the budget to make any kind of those sacrifices and contribute any of that kind of treasure. Where, are, where do your talents lie? There were 153,600 foreigners in Israel who didn't contribute financial equity. What did those individuals contribute? Sweat equity. These guys were in the mines, chiseling out a stone, measuring it, remeasuring it, making sure the surface would fit in the specific area that it was supposed to go. And then other foreigners were carrying the stone from the place it was chiseled to the place it was supposed to be set in the temple. And then the stone was set in the temple. And all of that was done because their investment of sweat equity. And yes, God does need our investment in terms of our financial treasure. Absolutely. But God needs your investment in terms of whatever treasure you have to contribute to his vision and to his mission. And if we translate that idea, and that's kind of what I was trying to do with Psalm 127, perhaps what God is building in your life is not something visionary in terms of mission or something visionary in terms of restoration. Perhaps it's something visionary in terms of your family. Well, then the same principles are true. It's going to take some time before things transform in your family if that transformation is going to be lasting. And it's going to take some teamwork if things transform in your family if it's really going to be the kind of transformation that God demands. That's going to require unity and seeing past people's skin color and socioeconomic status into their heart. And God's also going to ask you to give up your treasure to see His mission fulfilled In his church, and he's going to ask you to give up your treasure to see his mission and vision fulfilled in your personal life. 
And so often it's those things we hold on to most closely that are the things that prevent us from seeing God's vision work itself out in our lives most clearly. And if we're going to get hungry about God doing something incredible in our church or in our community or in our nation or in our lives personally, we got to be willing absolutely to part with some treasure. Man, this quantity of, of investment would have hurt. It was a lot. By his standards, it would have hurt. But sometimes building requires that amount of treasure. Building also requires trust. In Second Chronicles chapter 3, very next chapter, uh, verse 1, the Bible says, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arowana, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Building requires time, it requires teamwork, it, it requires treasure, building requires trust. We have got to trust that God will build the house if he leads us to build it. We've got to follow God in the process and we've got to surrender to his process. There's two places you're going to find this specific place identified in Scripture. One is right here in Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1 where David hears from God. On this location you need to build your temple. It's Mount Moriah. David's like, okay God, I got it. I'm going to build the temple right here. The other place you, you read of this specific location is in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. If you've got your Bible, you need to turn there for effect, and then you need to underline it. But I'm going to read it to you. I don't have it on the screen. Let me read you this passage of Scripture, Genesis 22, 2. God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Friends, when God builds, he requires our faith, our trust. So often, I believe, we misunderstand this concept. A biblical concept of faith and of trust is one that believes God above all, surrenders all to God, and is obedient this is absolutely the faith of Abraham who believed God so much he would even surrender his son. Not because he's willing to part with his son, but just because he understood that God was so faithful and so reliable and so trustworthy. When God made a promise to Abraham through your son, who, I, will, I will bless every nation and your, your offspring will be like the sand of the seashore, like the stars in the sky. That Abraham believed even if he would sacrifice Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. That's the kind of faith God requires in us if he's going to build something incredible through our church or in your life or in our community or country or world. Here's another thing I think about that. If your vision for what God intends to do in your life doesn't scare you a little bit, if it doesn't make your palms sweat, it's too small. If your vision for what God can do right here at WFR throughout the entire world doesn't make your palms a little bit sweaty... Doesn't make your heart flutter a little bit. Doesn't make you a little bit anxious. Doesn't make you a little bit uncertain. Then it's too small for the gigantic, enormous God that you serve. Solomon acknowledges that when he's starting to build a temple. Like, God is so big. How can I ever build anything that could contain him, that he could live in, that he could fellowship with us in? 
And it's in that own, it's, it's in his admission that we really see the power and the greatness of our God. Man, when we'll put our trust and our faith in God, through us he can do anything. But it's when we either assume that it's going to be our responsibility to do it, and we start measuring our outcome by our own ability, that we completely lose sight of the majesty and power and glory of God and the greatness of God and what God can do through broken people by His Spirit. This is the season God's calling us into, man. The vision is three campuses in northeast Louisiana. The vision is plant churches. The vision is make our building a place that's so irresistible, people can't help but come and encounter the gospel of Christ. But we don't want to think too small. Maybe God launches from this area of the country a worldwide missionary program where we pay for an hour of broadcasting on different radio stations all over the world. Oh, wait, God already did that. Maybe God's going to develop some people who will ultimately have an audience with the President of the United States of America and be able to influence him spiritually right here from northeast Louisiana, a little part of the world that's insignificant. Oh, wait, God already did that. And if you'd have asked anybody at the time this church was developed if God was going to do any of that stuff, they would have said, man, do you know where we're at? This is like West Monroe, Louisiana. This ain't New York City. But God chooses to use things that are humble and not able, insufficient rather than sufficient, insignificant rather than significant, because we understand that we've got to put our trust and faith in Him and that He's got to do it. That's the commitment our leadership is making most importantly to our future. Man, we're going to let God lead. We're going to dream big. We're going to brainstorm big. We're going to talk big. We're going to hope big. We're going to trust big. And we're going to let Him lead. And we really believe if we'll surrender everything to Him, that He'll do things beyond what our imaginations can even conceive of. And He'll do that in your life as well. God can do that. God can do that in your lives as well if you'll put your faith and trust in Him. Think of Abraham. And I'm going to conclude with this. This guy was too old and his wife was too old for God to do anything with them. It was impossible. But what kind of people and places does, does God choose? Not the most qualified, not the most capable, not the most perfect. Are you getting it? It's the broken, too old, messed up, insignificant things in the world that God chooses to confound the things that seem great on the outside. He chooses an old guy like Abraham and through him brings the Savior of the entire world. That's our God. So let's not underestimate him in our commitment to the future here at this church. And let's, why don't you not underestimate him in where God can take you in your personal life. I'm going to pray. And if you've got a need, I invite you to respond. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much, God, for your word. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would be committed, uh, God, to the future that you have in store for us. We want out of that equation. We want to just follow your lead. We want your spirit to have its way in this place. We want to be totally committed to letting you take the time that you're going to take to, to, to communicate and then execute your plan and your vision and your mission for this place. We want to work as a team. We want any barriers to be broken down. We want to be unified. We want to surrender our treasure because we trust that you're going to build something incredible with it.
God, some people in their lives personally, they need that kind of surrender. I ask that any here under the sound of my voice that need that kind of surrender would respond today and seek your face and be led by you. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.